Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Cristiana Figueres. Dame Cristiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. <laughs> this week, we talk about what's going on in the US with federal climate policy. We speak to the head of the Natural Resources Defense Council, Manish Bapna. And we have music from Disraeli. Thanks for being here. Okay, you too. So it's lovely to see you. I've missed you. It's been the longest break from the podcast. Welcome back, Thank you. Tom. Thank you. You did, a, you did an amazing job, I have to say. I listened to Clay last week and I was deeply concerned for my own job security. But I've been out with COVID for the last couple of weeks, um, but I'm back and I'm feeling better with enormous empathy for everyone who's struggling with it. It's not a fun disease. But there's been something rather interesting and significant has happened. Things since have I- changed whilst you've been away. We're going to come on to some serious matters, but perhaps the most serious matter is that that we no longer have Cristiano on the podcast, unfortunately. She's been elevated out of our stratosphere, I we, think. We now she? have yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dame Cristiana Figueres OBE. And yeah, I mean, actually... No, I was... excuse me, DBE. DBE, Dame well, of the British Empire. I mean, you, the OBEs no, you're DBE are, and are, OBE. Are... I mean, there's so many... It's all about the British Empire. You're basically, you've left Costa Rica. Yeah. You're now working the, for the, the British Empire. The question is, who knew that the British Empire still existed? It stretches from That's land end to the top of wherever England no. is, yeah. Look, seriously, in all seriousness, <laughs> I, I, I would imagine you would be comfortable with us still calling you Cristiano. Would that be all right? Does it have to be Dame Cristiana? Yeah, well, as long as you don't do, you know, change the dame for the dam, which some people are doing, okay? <laughs> Congratulations, Cristiano. Congratulations. Extremely very well, well deserved. And I'm and very... If you, if you, sorry, Tom. After you, sir. If you're going to go, to, if you're actually interested, if you go to Christiana's website, you'll see that she's been equally ennobled by practically every other country in the world. So I think the, the British came in last, but well done, good old Britain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and thank goodness that the honours system is being used to recognise things like that. So huge congratulations. Well deserved and recognition of you and so many people, including many of our listeners. Exactly. Who have done That's so the much. point. That is exactly the point. So many and people. And just a tiny thing for our international audience uh, were it Tom, it would be Sir Tom. Uh, Rivet Karnak, but the dame is the Paul. equivalent of the sir. Were it Paul, it would be Sir Paul. <laughs> <laughs> one day, Paul, one day. Now, we're going to get on to the complicated issue of US federal climate policy. There's a lot going on in the US at the moment. It's very consequential for all of us. But but we we have to start, really, by mentioning something extremely serious that's happening right now. And it's amazing how easy it is to not be aware of this, but it's incumbent upon all of us to keep our eyes open to what's unfolding around the world. And this is, um, this is not an easy one. For those who've been following the news, there is a very severe heat wave right now unfolding across the Indian subcontinent. Uh, about a billion people are facing temperatures up to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. That is um, about 47, 46, 47 degrees centigrade. And we should bear in mind it's only April, right? The hot season is just beginning. And if you look at the analysis and the reports from the Indian Weather Service, they're extremely concerned, first, because records are dropping all over the place. And secondly, because this is happening during a La Nina weather pattern that normally leads to a cooling effect. But despite that, we're seeing these absolutely devastating heat waves We've had Kim Stanley Robinson on this podcast. We've talked about that opening scene that I'm sure many people have read. We're not suggesting anything like that is unfolding right now, but my God, it's too close for comfort. 
So I, we just wanted to mention that. I don't know if either of you want to come in before we turn to our issue of US policy on this very concerning phenomenon that's happening right now. Well, the the, the tone of the tragedy, really, that is unfolding is very eerily, eerily remindful of... Uh, is remindful a word? Remindful of It is the, now, Dame Christiana. Yeah, thank you. Um of that first chapter of the book that if anybody, you know, it's very difficult to read through that chapter. Um, and now here we have something that hopefully will not have as drastic consequences, but we're moving in that direction. And, and here's the piece that I would like to underline. In a country that is a developing country that has no historical responsibility, in a country that uh, has for so many years argued that what really counts is per capita emissions because they have one of the lowest per capita emissions rates. Uh, just to put two examples, India per capita emission hovers around two uh, tons of CO2 per capita, whereas the United States hovers around 15. And India has for years been arguing that we should be looking at per capita emissions and that every single country should come down to two tons per capita because that would actually help to address climate change, which they're absolutely right. The injustice of this, the injustice of this is just heart-searing. Mm. So the uh, the book that uh, Tom Christiana referring to is the Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. And that uh, paints a, a long and detailed picture of a plausible future with regard to climate change. But it begins and sets the scene in a very terrifying way uh, with an extreme heat event in India. And it's just uh, extraordinary to see, see life imitating art here. Uh, so uh, that, that's, that's, that's pretty, pretty serious. Yeah. And, and I mean, obviously, it's very easy to feel very... Uh, it, the, disempowered and, and powerless as we look at this terrible thing that's unfolding. There's there's very little that we can do when it gets to this point of an emergency. One tiny thing I've done, which just helps keep it to mind, is I put a, a weather app on my phone. I have it on my home screen. And I put cities in India on there. And every time I look at my phone, I think about those people. And actually, I found it's really kept it in my consciousness. Not that it does any good, but it's actually... What a yeah, good idea, Tom. Mm, it, it brings yeah. it to mind on a regular basis. Now... Let's move on, and let's move on from the impacts that we're experiencing to hopefully what is going to become one of the key centers of solutions. And we're going to dedicate the rest of this episode to talking about what's happening at the federal level in the U.S. Um, not only the federal level, actually, but really what's happening at the U.S. and the federal level is a major piece of that. Uh, listeners will, I'm sure, be aware that towards the end of last year, there was an infrastructure bill passed in the U.S. that had certain elements of it that related to climate, something on electric vehicles and getting rid of methane leaks and energy efficiency mandates. But the big set pieces of what we were hoping were going to come from the Biden administration, stringent vehicle efficiency standards, plans to get rid of coal and transition power plants have not emerged in the way that we thought they might. And we understand the reasons for that, um, which is essentially that there is a perspective that the politics has shifted now that we are in the narrowing path to the midterms, and in particular, now that Russia has invaded Ukraine, 
and US voters are concerned about energy prices, we have seen this drop off the president's agenda. He barely mentioned it in the State of the Union. So we're going to get into this with Manish, who's someone we've known for a long time and is very expert. But which of you would like to come in with any comments on what, where the US is right now? Well, Tom, you said people are worried about energy prices. I, you know, I do not want to speak for U.S. citizens, but I will, um, because my my observation from having lived there twenty years is that U.S. citizens typically, and you know, here we go, horrible generalization, um, don't really react to energy prices because they don't that it's not very much on their radar screen. What they react to is to prices at the pump. Hmm. What is, you know, either the diesel or the gasoline that they're consuming, what is the price of that? And U.S. citizens are incredibly, incredibly um, sensitive to that because it is a vastly driving country. Yeah. People drive there more, uh, you know, longer distances and more cars per family, et cetera, et cetera, than most other countries. And so they are very, very sensitive to that. And the fact that those prices have gone up because of the Russian Ukraine, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine is what has put a lot of political pressure on Biden, who, as you say, came in with a pretty ambitious climate plan. Most ambitious ever. Yeah. Um, yes, most ambitious ever. Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, the uh, the the interference there of um, of West Virginia's senator um, Manchin, who was unwilling to pass that bill. Um, and now the price is at the pump. So a very, very difficult case for President Biden, who must actually speak to both of these concerns at the same time. Paul? Yeah. And, you know, in before this podcast, Tom, you had invited uh, us to l- listen to a, uh, an episode of The Daily, uh, which was talking really about how um, the administration had responded here. And the the phrase that I really picked up was that the Biden administration had, you know, made a political calculation, which is what politicians have to do, not to try and make a bigger and longer connection with the voters regarding this issue. Um, and 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 kind of, you know, sort of kind of backing, you know, like accelerating fossil fuels, you know, driving increased fossil fuel production in response to this crisis. And you know, I th- I think that I I was sort of sitting there thinking like, what's the problem? What's the problem? What's the problem? I was digging down, digging down, digging down, and I was actually doing a little bit of research um, for our. Uh, we're going to interview the, the the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. He's a very brilliant politician. But one thing that, listening to Sadiq Khan, he said that he was successful on climate change. He said because we educated Londoners on how bad this is, and I think that's the critical point. If we're trying to understand where politicians are going wrong they're not educating the public about how bad this is. So if citizens in the US are looking at, you know, the gas price and they're going to simply, you know, vote for a new president or change political affiliation in the midterms because, you know, the the, the money is increased and they haven't got any kind of context to see a counter argument, then then, you know, we're going to be in this political calculation all the way to hell. So we have to actually get the public understanding what's going on because democracies can't function without an informed Electorate. Now, the problem, of course, is that 
with very large amounts of money spreading all kinds of counter-narratives and with the sort of centralised media. You remember the good old days when the media would sort of say, well, a balanced view of what's going on. That's all gone with the internet. And we're now in this rather strange environment. But I think the challenge is to inform the public because only then can they make the decisions. I mean, I'm 100% behind that, Paul, completely. And we should have started that 30 years ago in earnest is the reality. And we should absolutely start it now. And time is very short. I mean, just listening to what you both said there and Christiana in particular, what you talked about, that... The question I'd like to ask before we go to, to Manish is, are we making any progress in the US? Is the US actually moving forward? Because all the way back to Clinton, you know, as far as my memory stretches, administration comes in, they says they're going to do something about climate. They have other priorities that they focus on first, be it healthcare or infrastructure. Then the midterms hove into view and they decide they can't talk about climate because it's it might potentially scare some voters. They then lose the midterms and then they shift to only doing something on executive action. And then in the end, we decide that we're just going to have to focus on the states because federal policy isn't really going to move anywhere. And that cycle, I mean, I've been around that loop. What a good, that is such a good description of deja vu. I mean, I've been around there three times. We go through that cycle constantly. And I feel like right now we're just at the point where we're saying, oh, the other priority, the infrastructure bill got through, had a little bit of climate stuff. The midterms are now coming. They're probably going to lose the house. I mean... Are we just going round and round or are we making any progress in each of these cycles? I can't say necessarily if we're making progress, but, I, I you know, I definitely uh, think that the idea that the, the kind of public debate is being, you know, kind of uh, poisoned, for want of a better word, by a lot of kind of corporate money is is more and more widely uh, held. I, I think investors, for example, now looking at what responsible ownership means, uh, they, they will say, for example, that, that you know, that we're going to have to get the money out of politics. We're going to have to allow the public and a democracy to kind of do its thing. But I mean, you know, so some, some weird things are happening. Um, for example, Elon Musk has just bought Twitter. Um, he, he issued a tweet recently that said, I'm increasingly convinced that corporate ESG or environmental, social and governance issues are the devil incarnate. Now, I mean, what he's doing is he's playing with the fact that there's a moment in our society where we're trying to work out what responsibility means. We're trying to work out what that means in government. We're trying to work out what that means in corporations, investors, in civil society, in, in cities, in, in all layers of our society. And there's kind of everything to play for. And, you know, someone like Elon Musk is probably going to be very influential now. They could bring back Donald Trump and we could have all those tweets every day, although it'll be a lot easier now he's not president anymore. Or we could have uh, some kind of new way of addressing our environmental, social and, and, and cultural challenges. Um, but, 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 but it could Paul, go either on, way. On, because I mean, I, I totally agree. So cultural transformation, society needs to shift, done, fully agreed. But the question right now is, can we get something material through the US federal system? You know, that's the that's the exam question for today. Where, where are we? Christian, I'd love to hear your analysis on that. Are we making progress or are we just going round and round? And, and, and the solution, of course, is what Paul said. I think we're going... But, yes, carry on. Yes, I agree that we're going round and round, or if you want to see it in a linear way um, and not circular, then we're making marginal progress. But we know that marginal progress is just not going to cut it. So I'm going to go out on a limb. A very brittle could break right under me. What if, what if the Biden administration took the crazy prices at the pump as the reason to, you know, I don't like war language, but sometimes you just really have to have to use it. What if the Biden administration declared war on fossil fuels, 
because of the Russian invasion, linking that in the public's mind, linking that so clearly that the public would understand, or those who want to understand, because some will never, that those prices are the way they are because of the Russian irresponsibility, and use that card then to push everything they can from the executive power to move the United States to much further, deeper, broader independence of energy, certainly from imports, but actually even from their own fossil fuels. Because until, as long as they are dependent on their own fossil fuels, they're part of the same manipulative game. Now, that's obviously very, very difficult to do. And right before the midterm elections, probably impossible. So I come back, you know, going out on a limb here. But it doesn't seem to me that staying within the stretch of what is reasonable and what is recommendable before midterm elections is going to get us anywhere. Yeah. And actually, that backs in very nicely to what Paul just said. Because um, all of us know John Marshall, who runs Potential Energy, who's a completely brilliant marketeer. And I was talking to him the other day, and he was telling me that right after the invasion of Ukraine, the US population was roughly split in terms of who to blame for the, for the rising gas prices. A third blamed President Biden, a third blamed Putin, and a third blamed the oil and gas companies for price gouging. Six weeks later, and after a very significant and dedicated communications campaign by the oil and gas companies, a clear majority blamed Biden. Now, that's a missed opportunity for us, right? They grabbed that narrative exactly. because they didn't want to be blamed and they spent the money on the public affairs that actually shifted public opinion. So this is exactly what you were saying, Paul, to blame the president for this and narrowed the political opportunity and space that he had to do what you just described, Christiana. So we are missing a trick. Hmm. But the good news is that we're having this conversation to an ever-growing number of people, and there are ways that these these lions, the corporations, can potentially be governed by the mice that are the government. But we have to do a little bit of kind of, we've got to kind of arm the mice and kind of disarm the lions. But it can be done, and it will be done, and it must be done. I think we just got found an episode title, Arm the Mice and Disarm <laughs> the Lions. Right. Okay. Anything else that either of you like to say before we go to Manish? No, I'd love to hear what he's got to say. Dame Unless Christiana? Christiana, you had something. Dame Christiana. Dame Christiana. Right. Okay, so Manish Bapna is a completely brilliant individual that all of us have known for a long time. He's had a 25-year career in leadership roles. Prior to his current position, he was the Executive Vice President and Managing Director at the World Resources Institute, WRI. And he joined um, a few months ago as NRDC, Natural Resource Defense Council's new President and CEO. This is a 51-year-old nonprofit of 700 scientists, lawyers, policy advocates from around the world to tackle the biggest environmental issues. It is a brilliant organization, well worth supporting, and you're going to love hearing from Manish. So here's the interview, and we will be back afterwards. Manish, hello. Thank you so much for joining us here on Outrage and Optimism, and we are so delighted to have someone, Manish, who is so clearly positioned to walk us through what on earth is happening in the United States. <laughs> it does seem from those of us who see it from the outside that we have basically 
two positions, and I'd love to hear your uh, your take on this. Two positions. One that is, let's open up the reserves of oil and gas. Understandable because fossil fuel prices are going through the roof. On the other hand, we have a very sincere um, effort to invest more into the alternatives, into renewables. And right smack in the middle of all of this is the Build Back Better bill that uh, Biden would have liked to have passed quite a while ago, but was not able to get it through, mainly because single-handedly, I would say, um, single-handedly, the representative from West Virginia um, basically tore the whole thing down. So now we're just a few months before the midterm elections. Very difficult situation for President Biden. What chance do we have of getting a climate bill, um, perhaps a a more um, humble Build Back Better bill, but one that would still have the necessary teeth? Christiana, absolutely delighted to be here with you and Paul and Tom on Outrage and Optimism. Um, You know, the question that you're asking is a question many of us in the United States ask every morning when we wake up. Uh, But but, um, really useful maybe to take a step back and just remember kind of where I always like to, where is the United States on its pathway to meeting its 2030 target? So 50 to 52% below 2005 levels in 2030 is the target. Preliminary estimates from the end of 2021 put the United States at 17% below 2005 levels. Just take a moment, let that sink in. That means in order to meet the target, a nearly 4% shift decrease in absolute emissions each year, every year, between now and 2030. So the the, the scale of the challenge cannot be overstated. In terms of how the United States can get there, uh, a lot of the modeling that my organization, NRDC, has done, but many other excellent modeling groups, shows that we must see three interlocking pieces that will only enable us to get to the 2030 target. We need to see bold legislation. We need to see clean energy investments through Congress. We need to see strong regulation, kind of executive action from the administration. And we need to see greater increase in state and subnational action. These are interlocking pieces. So the way to get there, you can't rely on one or two. We need all three. And if all three come together, they enable the others to be bolder than they otherwise would be. Yikes, Manish. I mean, that's a tall order, all three. It makes a lot of sense because obviously they're mutually reinforcing, makes a lot of sense. That's the ideal scenario, let's call it. Now, compare that to what you think is actually going to be, I was going to say possible. Let me call it squeezable. What can we squeeze through between now and 2030? Crystal ball it for us, Manish. Since you said squeezable, in my mind, the (laughs) metaphor that comes up is a ketchup bottle. 
right? <laughs> and you've heard this metaphor before. We've, it's an old ketchup bottle. We've been hitting it, hitting it, hitting it. Nothing has come out. The next six months, let me tell you what we need to see to come out to okay. be squeezable. Which is get how there. ketchup works, actually, sometimes. You know, and then all <laughs> of a sudden. <laughs> no, not too much, but a lot. <laughs> so on the legislation side, the heart of the Build Back Better bill, which is now not, you know, is, is not being called Build Back Better anymore, but were $320 billion in clean energy tax credits and another $150, $200 billion in other climate and environmental justice investments. The reductions were in no small part concentrated on these 10-year direct pay tax credits, incentives to support basically decarbonization of the power sector, um, scaling up of zero emission vehicles, looking at buildings and appliance efficiencies in a wide range of other areas that basically help support decarbonization. On the legislative side, the next few weeks are absolutely critical. We all know that the midterms are coming up in November, that the political window to get something through Congress is the next two months. And that is where there are conversations taking place. The next two months. The next two to three months, if we don't see significant progress, most people will say it will be too late. Just to go through all the various steps to get legislation through the Senate, complementary legislation through the House, reconciled and signed, and the steps to take to get that done. If we don't see progress, quite frankly, in the next couple of months, significant concrete progress, it will be too late. You get the August recess, midterms are fast approaching, it becomes politically virtually impossible to do that right before the midterm elections. So this is the moment on the legislative side. Wow. wow. Can I ask a question on that? So, Absolutely. I mean, that's a, that's a you know, we, we're, we're getting used to near-term targets and timelines in climate, but that's a really terrifying one, two to three months. I mean, looking at it from the outside, just it seems to have been this series of walls and obstacles and problems. What confidence do you have that the package you just set out, based largely around incentives to support the decarbonization of the power sector, have been structured in such a way that this isn't going to be dead on arrival? Do you think that that's done enough now to form that middle ground where this can happen? And how do we deal with our best friend in West Virginia? The malfunctioning so, Democrat. So, so <laughs> to, to, you know, one of the things to remember, a little bit more the optimism here. Yeah. You may recall 2009 after the Lehman financial crisis. The United States a stimulus package called TARP. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about $830 billion. $90 billion was on clean energy. It was the third rail. It was the smallest piece. It was the most controversial piece. And, you know, it, 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 it did finally get through. You know, fast forward to Build Back Better. Um, a few months ago, about a $1.752 trillion package, the largest share was on climate, 500, mm-hmm. $550 billion, And the one that politically brought almost everyone together. Hmm. So in the 10 years mm. since 2009, 12 years, things in the United States have changed significantly. That doesn't mean we have this yet across the finish line. But even Senator Manchin has spoken very positively about climate being the one area where he felt that there was significant alignment. Hmm. 
where he has raised questions are on the details of specific policy provisions, not questioning the importance of the clean energy tax credits themselves. Mm, that's an interesting so, point. So, so for our non-U.S. listeners, Senator Manchin is the senator from West Virginia. And, and it's important to remember, Senator Manchin is in a state that Trump won over President Biden in 2020 by 40 percentage points. Wow. Trump was nearly 70%. Biden and Harris were close to 30%. This is a deep wow. red state. Yeah. So so given that change, I mean, you just get described this long arc of transformation, which is encouraging. I mean, it's from failing big to failing small, but let's hope the next step is winning. Um, but given that, have we? do you think there's enough in this constructive, constructed package now to get us through in the next couple of months somewhere? I, I, I do, Tom, and, and you're, you're, you know, Pessimists might be right more often. Optimists win more often. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> but, uh, yes, money. Yes. We are so on your team. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I believe that there is um, a lot of goodwill at the moment. I don't want to sound Pollyannish naive. Look, there's some really hard conversations that need to happen. There isn't a lot of time. We need to get very concrete about what can be contained in this bill. Uh, but my, my, my hope, um, my sense is that those conversations are indeed happening um, with the Senate leadership, with the White House. Um, ultimately, I think if everyone just went into a room and said, what could we actually agree on? What they could agree on would hmm. capture the bulk of what we need out of this bill through legislation to be able to take a significant step forward to meeting the U.S. target. The challenge is there's a lot of other things, as you well know, on the global stage and in Congress. So time is tight. People must prioritize this because this is, as we all know, you know, an existential moment. So is your sense, do I understand you to say, Manish, that there is, at least in theory, enough common ground there across the aisle for everyone to reach at least a decent result on uh, on a on a new proposal of the build back better bill but that what is actually the most difficult threat for it is actually the distraction that might be there because of all of the other things that they have to deal with is that what you're saying so there's actually not the differences of opinion that still may be on the table, but rather will they be able to deal with everything that they need to deal with over the next two months? Is that what you're saying? I, I, I am saying that the differences of opinion within the Democratic Party, and in particular with Senator you know, Manchin, other senators, um, can be overcome. That okay. if you take what different people have said, that there is a way to find a landing spot that can get us several steps forward from where we are today. Hmm. The challenge a bit now, as you probably well know, is with Ukraine, there is going to be a number of provisions that also may end up within the bill that are about supporting existing infrastructure, trying to respond to the short-term crisis. So it yeah. is... You know, quite likely going to be a bit more of a mixed bill 
but still, mm. in my view, quite likely to be significantly net positive from a climate perspective. But it will be a little bit more mixed than may have been the case in late 2021. Mm. That is one piece of the puzzle. Um, but as I said, there are three pieces that are needed. And just to highlight a little bit more, the other piece that the, that the administration can do is on the regulatory side. Uh, President Obama, during his administration, used the administration to actually move forward, aim to move forward in reducing emissions. We believe that the two most important rules that the administration needs to focus on again in the next few months, ketchup bottle, next few months, are on power plants and vehicles. And the reason that this is so important is because in order to both propose and finalize the rules in a timely way before the four years are up, you need to start moving fast. Hmm. And that is, I want, I want to kind of signal that the rules, the regulations are equally important roughly in terms of the scale of reductions that they will help create. Mm-hmm. And those rules need to start to move much faster than what we've seen so far. And, and Manish, can those rules, those regulations, they can occur purely through executive authority or are they likely to be challenged by a Supreme Court that is now very much on the conservative side? I mean, it'd be great in a minute to talk about state, but is that regulatory piece at risk from legislative challenges in the courts? So you're raising exactly the right question that if the rules are not developed with a very strong scientific and analytical basis, they can be challenged. Companies, states can sue and hold up the rules in court. And so they need to be developed in a very, very thoughtful, robust manner. This is one of the challenges. As some of you may know, there is a very significant Supreme Court case that is also going to be decided in the next few months. Hmm. It's called West Virginia versus EPA. And this case is once again raising the question about whether or not the EPA has the authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. And there are two sets of questions that are being asked. Whether the EPA can regulate greenhouse gases in a significant way, and how, and if so, how can it regulate greenhouse gas emissions? There's been three cases in the past that have already conferred this authority, but the judiciary, the Supreme Court, has all shifted to the right, has become more conservative. And so this is creating a new uncertainty around exactly how the EPA will be able to set rules for power plants to tackle carbon pollution. Wow, that's a really ominous thing you just said out there in in sort of very Wait, diplomatic speech. Uh, yeah, sorry, Manish, but um, what what ever happened to the Clean Air Act of two thousand and seven, uh, where, so as far as my feeble memory tells me, that's when the EPA was given authority to regulate over greenhouse gases. So, is the Clean Air Act being put into question? So you're absolutely right. 2007 was Massachusetts for CPA. There was another Supreme Court case in 2011, American Electric Power versus Connecticut. And, and 
the way this case is being framed is not to confront the decisions that were taken earlier, but to ask a more nuanced question. It's a question about whether or not the EPA can regulate um, power plants or any sector in ways that have major economic or political implications. It's something called the major questions doctrine. And this is something that is not specific to the environmental or climate issues, but is a broader principle that conservative judiciaries and the conservative movement have been advocating, which is in essence that regulation or the role of the administrative state needs to be curtailed, needs to be confined, needs to be reduced unless there's explicit authority from Congress. And so that is in part the question that is being raised through this case. We believe, and we, NRDC is a party in this case, that that is absolutely a false argument. We can explain why, but, but just to let you know that that is one of the more significant uncertainties at the moment. We believe we will prevail on that. But then there's a question not about whether, also how. And that's where how the EPA might be able to regulate may be more constrained than what we've seen in the past. Wow. So this really goes to the core of what is the role of the state? What is the role of government? Protect its people or I don't even know what verb to use with respect to the economy. (laughs) Protect the people or protect the the perception of economic uh, stability. Um, Very, very interesting. Wow. Can I, can I just build on that and ask it like a tiny question, Manish? It's like, you know, you've spoken so eloquently about the need for us to see, you know, the interconnection of these issues about equity and, you know, kind of human rights and, and, and access to resources. And, you know, as we try and build a movement, how is it that this radical surrender of the state where the state says we're not interested in national security anymore, let the children, you know, take the risks, you know, we don't, we don't protect each other anymore. How is that called conservative? What happened to the word conservative? The way in which this, you know, major questions doctrine is being framed is that the administration, the, you know, ministries in many countries or departments in the United States, agencies are more constrained in what they can do unless there's explicit authority given by the legislature, given by Congress. And so I think the argument that the conservative movement would make is we're not against those things. We just believe that the legislature should be the one advocating for that. The problem is that legislatures rarely get into the level of detail that is needed to design these types of rules That's a reason why you have departments with 10, 20,000 experts (laughs) understand the science, understand the analysis to be able to design the granular types of rules that can protect public health, that can protect children, that can protect the planet. So it is a false argument in my view, but that is the type of response, Paul, you might get to the type Hmm. of question that you're raising from those that share that belief. Hmm. Hmm. Manish, can I ask you, um, you know, you've, you've set out these three pillars and the, the legislative path is there, but it's narrow. 
Um, the regulatory path has enormous risk, given you, we've got to assume that they've timed this case in part because the Supreme Court has now tipped and they feel they've got a better chance. But I mean, we'll see what happens. I'm glad to hear you feel optimistic. I'm sort of old enough to remember a few runs at this type of thing where when we're not successful, we sort of console ourselves with the fact that much of the authority resides at the state level and that can still move forward. So I'm curious to know um, if we're if we're not successful or even if we are, what chances of real progress reside at the state level? And also to go back to where you started, you said the US needs to reduce 4% annual emissions, real emissions each year. What proportion of that can we reasonably expect to achieve if we don't make the progress that we want to make on the legislative and regulatory pieces? So, so the states, the states are, you know, absolutely critical. It's both what can happen in states and what can happen, um, you know, with cities and with companies. So, there, you know, subnational, as we know, encompasses many pieces of this conversation. Mm-hmm. And we've seen, especially since you know the Trump administration, a real. Um, you know, explosion of effort at the state level. Um, and it's not, so you have 29 states now with renewable portfolio standards. About a dozen of them are getting you to 100% clean electricity by 2050 or earlier. So there's some real momentum there. You have um, California just recently put forward a new set, a proposed new set of vehicle kind of clean vehicle rules that would get you to 70% zero, nearly 70% of zero emission vehicles by 2030 and 100% by 2035. Wow. If you get that passed, you typically have, you know, 10, 15, 20 other states that adopt California's vehicle emission standards. So their earlier existing vehicle emission standards have been um, adopted by 16 states that represent 40% of the country. So you get that kind of replication effect that could be quite exciting. And it's not just blue leadership, you know, leadership from blue states on the coast. Illinois just passed a very ambitious bill a couple of years ago, or last year, I'm sorry, a few months ago, that gets you to a carbon-free power sector um, within the next 15-ish years. You get, um, you have North Carolina, a fairly purple-red state, that just passed a pretty bold climate legislation. You have Texas that has um, wind generating, um, wind and other renewable energy generating a quarter of the power consumed, um, which exceeds what they get from coal. So you're already starting today. To, already today. Mm. Um, so you're starting to see this type of shift happening at the state level. Yeah. But but again, so that's that's incredibly exciting, Tom. But coming back to your last question, on on its own, I don't believe states can get you yeah. there. Right. Even yeah, with coming all the back to your three your three part three part um, strategy here that we need all three. And and super yeah. struck by your comments about this this kind of clever legal argument that the you know the the the, the legislature's gotta give the rights um you know, it's a kind of catch-22, you know, that they haven't got time to go into that detail, but they've got to go. It's a sort of super clever legal strategy put together probably by a lot of money, frankly, from fossil fuel industry and and, and people with financial interests in it. Um, 
How do we, and this is really a question about how to be an activist, uh, uh, you know, you, you've got the most, you've got work for two of the most uh, interesting and, and, and influential NGOs in, in the history of the environmental movement, WRI, uh, uh, and now NRDC. Can, can you describe how, um, you know, you can see that, that, that you can help the people listening to this podcast to think through how they can maybe engage with that movement building, um, sort of change a narrative and help, you know, uh, in the United States, but worldwide uh, for the people to, to, to um, reconnect um, our, 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 our governments and our civil servants with their kind of sacred duty, if you will, to to protect the citizen and the state? How do we how do we get out of this kind of legal trickery and back to the sort of reality of human survival, for want of a better word? You know, I've had the absolute privilege to work with, you know, the World Resources Institute and the Natural Resources Defense Council, which I'm heading at the moment. Um, many people may not realize these two organizations are in essence sister organizations. They have mm-hmm. the same um, you know, the same parents. Uh, yep. you know, Gus we are forever Spath. quoting Gus Speth talking about <laughs> greed and selfishness and not environmental problems. But sorry, I interrupted you. No, 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 absolutely. You know, John Adams, Gus Speth, Dick Ayers, a number of people set up NRDC back in 1970. Um, Gus Speth then went to found the World Resources Institute. Uh, Jonathan Lash, the president for the World Resources Institute for nearly 20 years, spent his first 10 years in Natural Resources Defense Council. Um, Francis Beinecke, who was heading up NRDC for a very long time and worked there for close to four decades, has spent a very, you know, is a very influential member of the WRI board. So the two organizations are, are tightly connected. Uh, WRI, but, but hold on, Manish, but they're not Siamese twins. They're not Siamese twins. That's the, the interesting thing. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, WRI, where, where I spent my first, um, you, know, four, you, know, 14, you know, 14 years, um, you know, truly global. You know, WRI is about count it, change it, scale it. You know, the analytical work, thinking about how you translate the, the, the hard-nosed analysis into outcomes and then how you get change at scale. Um, you know, agenda setting, uh, you know, designer of game-changing platforms, um, you know, deeply embedded in a dozen countries around the world and thinking about how to move the global conversation. NRDC, um, an incredible array of both carrots and sticks. It's about the science. It's about the law. It's about policy. It's about advocacy. But, uh, you know, a different set of levers. You had, you know, mm-hmm. NRDC, best in class on litigation, the best lawyers, the environmental lawyers that anyone would want. Um, incredible um, kind of edgy advocacy communications, teams working with Hollywood about how we bring climate into mainstream, you know, entertainment. Um, Three million members around the world. How do you activate that, right? And Paul, that... Brings me to a second part of the question about what can people do? You know, I, I remember NRDC was founded roughly around when the original Earth Day in 1970 uh, took place. And, you know, it just reminds me, you know, 1970, the original Earth Day, 20 million people came out on the streets. It mm. was 10% of the United States at the time. 
Wow. Wow. 10% of the United States. Wow. It led to the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the setting up of the Environmental Protection Agency. It was an environmental revolution. We need that today. We saw that in the run-up to Paris. Christiana, as you know that so well, we need that again today. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, get out on the streets. <laughs> I was there. I was there on Saturday. <laughs> okay. Thank you. And just a, one final question that, from me. That, that Can you see systemic changes in any context that you think are really working, that are models that you'd love to see grow? I, I think we should be, um, if we take a step back and think about just vehicles, zero emission vehicles, um, it, it is actually pretty incredible how quickly we're going uh, forward on this S curve, I was I was struck by some numbers I just came across um, a couple days ago. Um, fourth quarter 2021 EV sales in Europe, EV sales in Europe last last quarter of 2021 hit 28 percent. Germany hit 34 percent. In the United States, quite a bit less, about six percent. Uh, but that's largely because EVs in the United States are still at the moment quite confined to the luxury segment. Within the luxury segment, they were, you know, 31% for luxury passenger cars. So just, just add, you know, how we think a little bit about, about that is, is incredibly important. I think there's some exciting things related to that. Mm-hmm. But the other piece I do want to bring up, because we haven't spoken as much about that in this podcast yet, but I know it's important to all of us, is is kind of how I also think we are trying to be much more intentional about bringing equity into the conversation about decarbonization and the climate challenge. Globally, in the United States, it's something that we have been late to do. We haven't been very granular about it. We talk about how many renewable energy jobs might be created at the national level but what does that mean for a particular state or a particular community? How do we begin to develop transition plans at the community level or even for countries in mm-hmm. ways that can actually bring issues of equity much, much more centrally mm-hmm. into the conversation? And how do we also, you know, in the United States, you know, there's been some small early steps being taken to bring environmental justice voices more to the table. One of the things about the Build Back Better Act that was passed in the House was the very significant investments also made to deal with many of the environmental issues that are confronting frontline communities, overburdened communities that by and large happen to be communities of color, black and brown communities that have been much too long left out of these conversations. Mm -hmm. So that's, Paul, another area where a lot more work needs to be done. But I do think we're starting to see some some early early steps in the right direction. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much for bringing that in, Manish, because we 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 do tend to sort of put it at second priority level, and if we continue to do that, we're not going to move on this at all. So thank mm. you very much for 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 ringing that memory bell for us to remind ourselves of that. Um, Manish, we would love to have a much longer conversation with you. Um, but sadly, we have to come to the end of our conversation today. Hope to talk to you later on in the year when we mm. know a little bit better what's going on in the U.S. Um, but as you might know, our tradition is to ask all our guests at the end 
to name one thing that uh, that you are still outraged about, and there are many, but what would be your top pick today? And one thing that you're really excited and looking forward to and optimistic about? On, on the outrage, I... Um <laughs> there are quite a few things I'm outraged about at the moment. Uh, the, the, perhaps the usual suspect, you know, the fossil fuel industry using the pretense of Ukraine to advocate for more drilling, for more mm. infrastructure, um, you know, solutions that will not meet the short-term concerns and pain that Ukraine or the world, Europe or the broader world is facing, but will lock us in to greater warming, that we can't afford the fact that uh, despite absolutely record profits, they're not reinvesting those profits in clean energy, but they're actually returning them in terms of stock buybacks, increasing shareholder wealth. So there's there's something there that's just just wrong. Um, but I'll get one other thing, you know, the, the World Bank IMF's spring meetings just concluded. And, you know, one of the most terrifying um, kind of conclusions from that meeting is when you look back to pre-pandemic levels, uh, some of the estimates of a number of people falling back into extreme poverty are sure. absolutely terrifying. Yeah. 250 million people. Oh my God. When you add you know, the COVID and the response to COVID, energy prices, and now the forthcoming food crisis, which is going to yeah. get worse before it gets better. Yeah. 250 million people falling back into poverty, extreme poverty, $1.90 a day, while wealth continues to get increasingly concentrated in certain industries and certain individuals. That, that is morally unacceptable. Yeah. Well. I'm, I'm optimistic, Christiana, about outrage, <laughs> about the power of outraged people to do that. something, right? You know, I, you know, just, just coming back to, um, you know, the Earth Day, coming back to what we saw in the run-up to the Paris Agreement and the Sustainable Development Goals. You know, we, we, you know, we, we need that now. We're starting to see that. It's been tough with COVID, but I was, I, many people were out this weekend for Earth Day, getting that energy back, getting that outrage back. We need that because that is what moves things at the scale and speed that we need. Yeah. <laughs> I love that combination of outrage and optimism. Optimistic if about the ask, outrage is absolutely yeah, fascinating yeah, yeah. kind I, of jujitsu sumo. <laughs> you know, Manish, we asked this question of so many people, but this answer is a first. So <laughs> th t totally delightful. Manish, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you to you and, and NRDC, its members, and so many, so, so, so many people who continue to put pressure, frankly, on what should be happening in the United States. Um, so really appreciate that. And if we may, we would love to have you back once we know uh, where things are going to, again, interpret that for us. So thank you very much for today. And we look forward to a further conversation. Absolutely. It's been, it's been a privilege. Thanks, Manish. Thanks so much, Manish. Great. So what a privilege to get a chance to sit down with Manish and get the benefit of his insight into what's going on in the US. Where are you both after that discussion? Uh, I'm just, 
There's so much that he, he, he spoke about. He's so experienced, so knowledgeable, so great to know that there's that kind of force um, dealing with these, these multiple problems. But I don't know, there was one thing that stuck in my mind, and I was reading about it a bit subsequently, about the, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court is trying to suggest that the Environmental Protection Agency, the Environmental Protection Agency, do you remember that uh, Manish was talking about that, uh, you know, uh, doesn't have authority to control pollution. And it's like they talked about the court's conservative majority. And I started thinking to myself, what, are they, what do they mean by conservative? I think this word conservative has been completely hijacked. I think people who are trying to suggest that the Environmental Protection Agency can't, can't, can't you know, control pollution, they are not conservatives. They are radicals. They are super radical, new kind of, 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 of sort of ideological uh, judiciary. Um, you know, I, I mean, look, it is what it is, right? You know, everyone will write about it and talk about it. But I just think uh, such an incredibly reckless approach uh, towards such a dangerous pollutant, which is already having this enormous damage. You just can't call that a conservative action. So I reject the idea of conservative judiciary. Well, but they're still being incredibly obstreperous, whether, you know, whether you want to call them conservative, obviously they're not. But let, let's just, you know, be clear for listeners that actually the Clean Air Act of the United States does authorize the EPA uh, to regulate air emissions from both stationary and mobile sources. So that means from plants, energy generating plants, as well as from vehicles. And what is happening here is that uh, West Virginia as a state is actually arguing um, that that basically to weaken the Clean Air Act. So it's not that EPA cannot do it. Currently, it can. It is authorized. And West Virginia is seeking to weaken that, which is very dangerous. Very dangerous because that then, of course, means that every state can do, you know, willy-lilly, whatever they wish. Um, and, and, and definitely weakens the hand that the executive has in being able to establish standards for vehicles, standards for plants, which is one of the most powerful tools that the APA has for regulating emissions. So a very negative approach here that is being exploited now because of what the Trump administration did mm. in very strategically placing people who do not believe in the executive power and, well, beyond that, who do not believe that climate change should be addressed, placing them in very strategic positions that allow for this now to be questioned. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I well, there's so as you say, Paul, there was so much in that interview. I mean, I've always slightly believed that I probably should have been a lawyer in this life, and I think um, I actually realised in that interview I would have been a completely terrible lawyer because uh, you know just the degree of attention to like when he talked about the fact that you now have a conservative leaning Supreme Court. 
So you have a major risk that any different yeah. rulings can be struck down. So the necessity to construct the arguments which are based on endangerment findings and scientific basis so that you can get them through. And he was able to still sound optimistic about the possibility of getting them through. But if you look at that kind of from the outside and think now you have a conservative majority court, it looks really concerning, actually, that they will remove the endangerment finding of greenhouse gases under the, under the Clean Air Act, that they will do all sorts of other things that weaken the authority of the federal government. And I, I have to say I was filled with enormous appreciation for Manish and his 700 colleagues who are working tirelessly to find the right arguments to try to prevent any of these things from going on. And, and, and thank goodness that they are, and so many others, because it's such important work. Thank goodness that they are in the face of craziness, right? Yeah. In the face of complete craziness. So the U.S. Postal Service just released $6 billion contract for new trucks um, that are going to be combustion engine trucks. Jesus. It is completely crazy. I mean, just from a logical point of view, how are, how are they spending money on new trucks that have combustion engines when you have alternatives that are there that are electric um, trucks, especially at a time in which fossil fuel prices are going through the roof? It is just completely crazy. Yeah. Completely yeah. crazy. How how do they put those two things together? Where is the logic here? So I just want to kind of like launch campaign with actually no budget, no plan. Um, <laughs> no one's going to follow this campaign and it's just going to disappear. But my campaign is to say, and by the way, I was, you know, we, in, the, in the UK, we have a conservative party and that was not the party that I kind of grew up with. But, but it's, you know, like a lot of the population would call themselves kind of conservatives. I don't think these crazy people who are saying, you know, climate change doesn't matter and, you know, we can face any kind of risk and we can pose any kind of risk on our children and we can, can pose any kind of risk on, 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 on the more vulnerable. They don't own that word conservative. That's not right. Let's not call them conservatives. I don't know. I don't know. We're going to find a name, but let's not call these crazy radical people exposing the whole world to so much risk conservative because I think we kind of lose the argument we need to make against their radical craziness when we call them conservative. That's not what they are. So what what does conservative mean to you, Paul? That the the world is conserved like we get to survive another, you know, thousand years that humans yeah, can like, you know, the environment, world should be trees, you know, fundamental conserve, basis of, yeah. conserve nature, you know, not like just, you know, big machines or some ghastly problem with the atmosphere smashing everything up. And we should point out in all humility, because we've been talking about the US, but um, in the UK where Paul and I sit, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, MP and member of the cabinet, gave a speech this week on Monday, I don't know if you picked up on this either of you, in which he basically set out in his words, because he was prominent in the Brexit campaign, that the promise of Brexit can now not be delivered under net zero legislation. So the government needs to abandon net zero legislation in order to free themselves from the shackles of regulation and move forward into this future that they're trying to believe that they're able to construct, but that net zero is not a part of it. So this is a full frontal attack in the UK as well. And we'll get more into that at another time. But I like your idea, Paul. I mean, maybe just calling them I know I was going to swear then, but probably better if I don't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Anything else from either of you before we go to our music? Not really, but Christiana's about to say something. She's thinking so hard, I can tell. That's the deliberations of a dame. <laughs> I'm just really concerned that we're shuffling the chairs around on the Titanic, right? Uh, 
and not really getting to grips with this, especially in the United States. Oh, and, and now, Tom, you bring in the UK. I guess the question that I ask myself is, what is the leadership that is necessary to step above and beyond the shuffling of the chairs? Mm. And I know that the shuffling of the chairs is really necessary if you're playing that political game. And maybe the answer is you have to play that political game because there's no other option. But, you know, there's a point in which from from the way, way bottom of me, I want to reach out to very different leadership that does not let itself be curtailed by those chairs that need to be shuffled. Um, so I, that's not an answer to anything. It's just a cry from the bottom of my gut. Yeah. We, we are so running out of time. We're so running out of time. And we just can't continue to shuffle these chairs. Yeah. No, I mean, Christiana, when I hear you speak about that kind of leadership, I can tell that you're thinking about it and envisioning it with all your heart and an extraordinary, uh, almost unimaginable intellect. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to, I'm sure we'll speak for many people going on that journey with you. Let's find that leadership. For sure. We need it. Right. Okay. So as ever, we're going to go to our music. And this week we have a, an amazing piece of music from Disraeli called My Mama. So we will leave you with that. And thank you for coming with us on this journey this week. None of this stuff was ever going to be easy, but we've got to stick with it. Find that leadership that Christiana was talking about. It's true that real failure is possible, but real success is possible too. So let's keep working for that. Thanks for joining <laughs> us this week. We'll see you next week. Bye. I wrote this song for my mum when she was recovering in hospital from an accident. It's a healing spell for her. And it's also a healing spell for Mother Earth and a way of honouring what we come from. Mother Earth is in us in the same way that the DNA of our own mother is in us, part of who we are, our material. And I also want this song to uplift us and give us some of the resilience that we need to heal and face our challenges. Like my mum who did get up out of her wheelchair and she learned to walk and dance again. run my mama raises her eyebrow i like she raised her son my mama carries all them bombs and she was born among oh you don't want to mess with my my mama's not an old time none of the time she comes from is hard my mama's got a quick draw tongue and a titan size of heart she give you hot steamed food and a soup of greens she grew there was love in all the things and I will come visit you I will bring fruit and games I will come anytime you call I will come visit you I will bring fruit and games I will come anytime My mama's in a wheelchair now But she'll get out and run My mama raises her eyebrow I like she raised her son My mama carries all them bombs he was born among Oh, you don't wanna mess with my <laughs> Oh, you don't wanna mess with my
swings of whirlpool blade in the drip drip days undone. My mama by the tum tum tree with a gorgeous summer's mind. My mama's only five foot two, but she rolls like nine foot nine. My mama's in a wheelchair now, but she'll get out and run. My mama raises her eyebrow high like she raised her son. My mama carries all them bombs as she was born among You don't wanna mess with my Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. Uh, Disraeli, everyone, with his track, My Mama, is what you just heard. And hey, if you did not listen to that song with a nice pair of headphones or speakers, I can't recommend it enough. Go back and listen. The bass that comes in on the first chorus will shake the room or shake your head or (laughs) whatever you're listening on to be specific. And speaking of shaking the room, Disraeli is on tour and you should go see him. He's got three UK dates this week, starting tonight, Thursday night in Nottingham and tomorrow, Friday in Birmingham and Saturday in Brighton and yeah, more in early May. So I've got a link for the tour dates and tickets in the show notes. And this was really cool. He's touring differently this year. His entire tour is doing things like traveling by train instead of a diesel bus. Uh, The entire tour crew is eating sustainably and local, uh, and even some equitable solutions are happening. They're paying talented musical performers uh, from economically marginalized communities in the cities that they're performing through on the tour, and free tickets to these shows are being given to people from economically disadvantaged communities too. It's these kinds of radical collaboration that are an opportunity to dismantle systems of oppression, you know, do local climate solutions work, build real community and social equity. So yeah, Disraeli is inviting us to take part in creating the future we want. So go to the show notes, click the links, buy a ticket, go see the show. He has all these really creative opportunities to financially back the tour and make these a beautiful music moments happen. So again, check the show notes and enjoy the show. Thank you so much to our guest this week, Manish Bapna. Uh, I think I speak for a lot of people when I say I sleep better at night knowing that Manish and the NRDC team 
are doing what they're doing. You can connect with Manish and learn more about supporting the work of the NRDC in the show notes. If you listened last week, Christiana and I, excuse me, Dame Christiana and I talked with Edwina Flock from the Environmental Music Prize. Just a reminder to all our listeners, voting is open and live, baby, so you can go get your votes in, enjoy some music, and support environmentalism by going to environmentalmusicprize.com. Link is in the show notes. Now, on a more serious note, uh, this week our production team was discussing how our podcast is increasingly more often entering into the painful and unjust realities of the climate crisis. You know, the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual wellness of ourselves and our community is how we're going to win this thing. And that means that your mental, your physical, your emotional, and, and your spiritual health is vital to this better future that we're creating. So this week in the show notes, there is a crowdsourced thread of resources for taking care of our fear and our anxiety surrounding the climate crisis. The thread was started by Elena Wood. Uh, She's a climate communicator and sustainability scientist. Um, And you don't need our permission to take care of yourself, but here it is anyway, if it helps, you can take a break and come back whenever you are ready. You're not alone. We need you around as your best full self, fully you. And that means you've got to take care of you. Okay, deep breath. Optimists win more often. It's a marathon, not a sprint, people. And let's stay rooted and connected. If you need a little joy and optimism in your feed, go ahead and join us online at Outrage Optimism. Yes, uh, new social handles. And if you love this podcast, you know what helps sustain us? Your feedback. So leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We read every single one and we'd love hearing from all of you. Okay, next week we'll be here with another episode because we love being together. And I will be here at the end of the episode again. So I will see you then, my friend. 